Welcome to Walk the Tech Talk, a podcast with host Anna Frazetto, Chief Digital Technology Officer and President of Technology Solutions at Harvey Nash, a global professional services company. On Walk the Tech Talk, Anna interviews technology leaders from across the globe and discusses how and where they are making big impacts on their industries. On this episode of Walk the Tech Talk, Anna interviews Christine Stone, a technology leader whose career has spanned powerhouse global firms like McDonald's and Volkswagen, to name a few, with her most recent role as VP, IT Chief of Staff at Brookfield Properties Retail. Not only do Anna and Christine's professional pursuits often cross paths, but they are both passionate advocates for promoting greater diversity in technology. Anna and Christine discuss the results of the latest Harvey Nash and ARA Women in Tech survey and the slow progress toward the tipping point for more diversity in the industry. Christine also shares personal examples and stories on how to create clear goals within your team, why it's necessary to set measurements for your DNI program, and how to stay motivated. Join Anna and learn from the strategies and accomplishments of this episode's Tech Trailblazer. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Walk the Tech Talk. I'm Anna Frazetta, your host, and I'm really excited to welcome to our show Christine Stone, who is a technology leader who, honestly, Christine, your career has spanned some powerhouse global firms like McDonald's, Volkswagen, just to name a few. Uh, You've held the most tech roles, most senior roles within these organizations, and most recently, your role of Chief of Technology for Brookfield uh, Properties. Now, Christine, you and I, we've had several chances to kind of overlap in our technology work over the years, as well as in our advocacy for diversity and technology. And most recently, we had the opportunity to uh, work together at TechServe Alliance, which I know I'm going to ask a little bit more about the topic that we were talking about during that session. But today, we're going to dive into both of our profession and passion. But I want to start by welcoming you to the show. Thank you so much, Christine, for being here. Oh, Anna, I love exchanging ideas with you. So glad to be here today. Fantastic. So it's good to have you here. Now, I started off mentioning our shared passion for promoting greater diversity. I would love to begin the conversation right there because of what we're seeing right now in the industry. And as you know, Christine, we actually spoke about this at the conference that Harvey Nash has a women in tech survey uh, this year revealed some small signs of progress around women in technology field, women noting that the environment to be more welcoming than in years past. Again, not significant improvement, but definitely some positive strides. I have to say this little positive bump came just in time, right? I don't know about you, but I have been feeling really frustrated with year in, year out, data of little to no progress. And you'd wonder, like, everybody's talking about it. We're all expressing the importance at a company level, but still not seeing the progress. So it was great to see a little bit of improvement. So I would love to start there and ask you about the challenge of supporting and delivering on diversity in tech today. I think, Anna, you bring up a really good point. I don't think we've hit the tipping point yet. I keep telling myself that it will be coming. I think in the meantime, though, the question is, you know, how do we advocate for change? and How do we make the case? And I think a lot of people lean back on making a case for diversity that it's the right thing to do. I've found personally that the best case for any change is profit. So my teams are consistently excellent and usually better than other teams that they're compared to. Um, When people ask me how I do it, I point to how I design my teams to 
to be diverse. When I do that, we don't come to fast answers about technology problems. We, we really knock it around and come up with something solid, and it helps us do two things, solve things quickly, but also innovate more fast and more effectively than others. Great. So now, what are the most valuable lessons you've learned when working to implement a diversity and inclusion program that could help audience members who are charged with designing, leading, or supporting these efforts within their own organization? I think the effort has to have a goal and you have to measure it. If you really want something to be adopted. And I think, too, you have to look at changing your compensation model of your leaders. Within teams, I found that you know, there's so many studies that talk about the, the ways that people really learn. And we always focus so much on formal training. But stats show us that the majority of learning actually happens. In fact, 70% of learning happens while doing. So I find that giving team members stretch assignments, giving them a chance to present results, especially in front of leadership, these are ways you really grow skills in a way that they last. I also think that if you've got a DNI program or an event, you have to have a clear goal for the event and a specific vision of what the problem is that you're trying to solve. Again, you are looking to measure the impact. No, that's terrific. And measuring the impact, I think that's such a key component. And I've heard you talk about this before, but I think that's the most valuable lesson that people can kind of take away. You've got to be able to measure it because that's the only way that you can kind of be held accountable to it. So now, okay, recently I got to hear you speak at TechServe Alliance Conference and you focused on the importance of ensuring a diversity and inclusion programs that are measurable, right? Exactly what we're talking about. So I was wondering if you would share with our audience here why this is such an important element and how you suggest businesses go about making sure that their programs are measurable. A few years ago, I was so frustrated, Anna. I felt like you. I was really disheartened. I felt like I had done so much to help support women, especially in tech in Chicago, and yet pay gap still existed. We weren't seeing a significant change in women in leadership. And so I thought about, okay, what could I really do to make a difference? And if you think about it, in order to influence policy at a national and even at a business level, women need to have power, have wealth and influence. And the way that you get that is by having more senior roles in organizations. So I committed um, that year that I was going to help diverse candidates get jobs, raises, promotions, tougher work, but I was going to do whatever I could to elevate their compensation and their influence. The first year that I did this, I kept track of the different people that I met with and of what their results were. The first year, I helped 38. This year, I'm up to 61. When I started counting, a couple things happened. I celebrated the victories, but I also started to notice activities that weren't necessarily making a difference, and so I was able to drop those out, and I was able to stay laser-focused on the things that, that did make an impact. Deming, who's like the god of all things quality, always said, only measure what you want to change. His theory was a lot of people measure a lot of things, but they are not going to take action on them. But if you really want to get a group oriented toward action, measure everything related around that change that you want to drive. So I love measurement. I think it shows us that what we're doing is right, but it also shows us what we're doing that's not making a difference and we can um, 
stop spending energy there. Right. I I love that. So I've, you know, I've been a, a programmer, you know, for years, you know, project management, program management, and, and every aspect from a work perspective, you always measure, right? You measure the success of a project, you measure your deliverables. And it's so interesting that something as simple as this has not been applied in particular with diversity and inclusion programs. But I think that's such a simple thing to do. And I love the way how you quantify it and how, I mean, just take a look from one year to the second year, how much you've already increased. And if everybody just did that little part, just imagine the impact that we would have on, on a global level. You know, now as we, you know, as we talked about the survey, I've mentioned that I've had my, you know, low point when thinking about diversity in the tech sector. What makes you optimistic about the opportunities ahead for, you know, for minorities, for women in tech and industry? And, you know, when I talk about diversity, I mean, I really do talk, it's not just a male female thing, it's diversity across the board. And one of the passions that I always share is that I think the most diverse groups um, teams that I've worked in have always been the most productive and the most effective in delivering what needed to be delivered. So how do we kind of share this with, with, the, with the rest of the world? The beautiful thing about the space that we work in is that we're data oriented and a lot of data is supporting the effectiveness of diverse teams. We're also seeing a lot of data about the pressures on the talent market right now. And we know that we're going to have to get really creative about where we we find talent from. So just the fact that we're starting to use data to look at a lot of these problems gives me hope because I think data drives terrific strategies. There are other reasons, though, why I'm optimistic. I love recent election results, growing numbers of diverse people who are getting positions in politics. These people look like me. They look like my team. They're going to be able to drive thoughtful policy. I also really like seeing more leaders in business do what I'm doing and start to adjust their mentoring, start to maybe shift away from like support or comfort and instead go to serious targeted tactics to help elevate people into new roles and new opportunities. And I think the last reason I'm optimistic is the number of great people I meet every single day. I think the future is in good hands. Well, that's great. I think those are, are great reasons to be optimistic. So now I have to talk about that, you know, in addition to work and diversity advocacy, you're also somehow made time to write a book, which I'm so excited about. What can you tell us about the book? Well, the way you make time to write a book in Chicago is you leverage the two hours that you spend every day sitting on the train. So that was how I pulled it off. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was important to me. Years ago, um, I was sent by the women's organization in my company to ask a female executive to speak at a big workshop that we were going to have. We were so excited. I met her. The meeting was going terrific. And all of a sudden, she shares with me that she has never met a successful working woman who had children. And she stunned me into silence for a second because at the time, Anna, I had four kids under the age of eight. Like there was a statistical likelihood that I have Cheerios stuck to my skirt somewhere, right? And so I was just, all I was thinking was, God, don't let there be Cheerios on my skirt. I'm going to totally give myself away. So I changed direction in the conversation and I left her office thinking, A, I can never tell her that I have kids. But she's kind of right. I'm carrying a heavier load. There are more barriers for me to get ahead than there are with a lot of my coworkers. And I really need to figure it out. 
so my mom had great hacks solved a lot of things like she'd tell me like oh honey if your kids ever oversleep just put on your winter coat and lipstick and nobody will tell that you still have your pajamas on you know when you drive your your late kids to school so she had these creative practical ideas but she didn't work outside the home so her creative ideas didn't translate well for me so I noticed something interesting I give talks to women especially in tech and I talk about career progression things that were going on in tech and in strategy and then we'd open it up for questions and answers. And it never failed that a significant number of the questions were around, how'd you pull it off? How'd you have kids and still do the job? And so I started to share some of my, my hacks, my shortcuts, and people started saying, oh gosh, you should write these down, you should share them. And I started to think about how much time, you know, if we're thinking about if my work with people helping them get new jobs, promotions, and raises is making a difference, this could also be another way to make a difference. If I share these ideas with folks that help them save 20 minutes a day, two weeks a year to save it, this could not only make people more successful in their jobs, it could make businesses more profitable. So my goal is that this book is going to fill a gap for um, this leading generation of dual working parents. It's equally balanced about you know things you can do to get ahead and work, but it's also got a lot in it about raising good humans and doing them at the same time. I, I really believe that um, unexpected, impactful hacks can help people succeed, but we can accelerate that by sharing them as quickly as possible. So that is my hope of the book. I love that. I absolutely, and I've heard some of the hacks. I don't, I don't want to share them. I want everybody to go out and, and buy this book when the book comes out. Uh, but I have to say it's, it's, you know, a lot of times you get asked the question, uh, all of us do in the roles that we have, you know, work-life balance, does it even exist? And a lot of times, you know, you're kind of faced with the reality of we try work-life balance, but in reality, it's really hard to say that it actually does exist. But what a great way to have shortcuts right, to kind of give you a little bit more time so that you can balance it. So tell me, Christine, when will the book come out? It comes out March 10th. There's going to be a big launch party in um, Chicago. And if anyone's interested, there's a website that's called theparenttrack.com. And you can sign up there and we'll keep you posted on the, the gathering. And I'm really excited about it. Well, that's fantastic. So theparenttrack, all one word, dot com. Yep. So now that's wonderful. Congratulations on the book. I look forward to reading it. I can't wait to get my hands on it. So now you're transitioning from just finishing up at your time at Brookfield Properties. As you prepare for your next professional chapter, can you tell me what is the advice you'd like to give people starting out in their own tech careers? What should they be looking for, asking for or avoiding? Absolutely. It took me a little while to figure this out, but I think the best advice that I've ever gotten is to pay close attention to the parts of your job that feel joyous. There's a great study about if you want to find out what somebody's really good at, you never ask them, what are you good at? Instead, you ask them, what makes you happy? Because what they found is, believe it or not, there is a correlation between joy and doing something that you're really an expert or a master in, that you have a real competitive advantage in. So if we pay attention in our work to the things in our job that we seem to do better than anyone else, we should put our hands up. We should volunteer to do more of that. We should seek jobs where that's the primary function of that job. 
And we also should know that as our careers go on, things that used to fire us up when we were in our 20s or in our 30s might not fire us up in our 40s because we might get bored after having fully mastered those. So I think that when we pay attention to the things that we're excellent at, that gives us a competitive advantage and really helps us you know, perform exceptionally well. Um, I think, too, that we should all look for teams that have people like ourselves. Um, it is impossible to excel in an organization if you don't really fit well. I think if you find a great boss, it's a great idea to follow them if you can. Um, I think, too, that if you can find ways to help others and ask people, at the end of every meeting, I try to always remember to ask people, what can I do for you? I think that interesting web of interaction that we build with people helps not only elevate them, but a lot of times it helps elevate our own careers. And the last piece of advice I'd probably give someone is pay close attention to the compensation you make early in your career. It has lasting implications for the trajectory over the life of your, your work life, and it's really important. And now, you know, what's interesting about that, you know, Christine, is that, you know, you said follow, you know, follow a great boss if you can and, uh, you know, surround yourself with people that, you know, that you like, uh, that that would help you enhance your career. But also, I think it gives you the confidence too when you surround yourself with people that you like. So like that, maybe this could also help when we talk about, you know, pay inequality that takes place. Uh, still today, if you're kind of put yourself in a better situation, maybe this could help break down those barriers also. I agree. I agree. Okay, so we have time for one final question. I, I think our audience is really excited to hear what's next for you. You've risen to the top of the tech industry. You've been a guiding light and a mentor to people seeking out careers in the tech sector through organizations like IC Stars and, of course, Aura. You've written a book. What do you see next for you? Well, Ed, I'm having a great time right now. I'm in discussions with a number of um, organizations about leadership roles. and Each of these organizations has in common that they're either going through a peak period of growth or a peak period of change. So I, I love the work that I do. I can't wait to figure out what the next phase is. Um, just in case uh, things slow down between uh, these discussions and starting up again, um, I'm also working on a second book. The first book was about work-life balance hacks. The second one is on realistic and practical ways to be a great leader. That's fantastic. Oh, Christine, I'll tell you, this is great. What I would love to do is um, provide contact information for the audience if they're interested in reaching out to you. What's the best way? The best way to reach me is um, either on my website, parenttrack.com, or christinesandmanstone.com, or you can feel free to shoot me an email at christine.sandman.stone at gmail. Looking forward to talking. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Walk the Tech Talk. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to keep up to date with Walk the Tech Talk, please subscribe by heading over to your iTunes app. While you're there, please rate the podcast and let us know what you like the most about it in the review section. Thank you and happy listening.